The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There is an ancient parable. It's centuries old. It's an ancient story. And it's not a biblical story, but it is, it, I think it's interesting. It's got actual truths in it. And it's the story of a, a person who wakes up in the afterlife. And uh, he, he wakes up and his eyes are, are, are starting to adjust. He's, he's in this new dimension. So he's, his eyes haven't adjusted yet. And the first thing that hits him is just the smells of this sumptuous feast. I mean, the smells of all of the most incredible foods that, uh, that you've ever experienced. The greatest foods that... Um, the planet has to offer, flan, <laughs> all other kinds of things. I mean, past that, what is there really? So, I mean, but it's everything. I mean, you've got, I mean, it's like Thanksgiving plus Noche Buena plus uh, the best Super Bowl party foods you can imagine. I mean, it's all there. I mean, it's just all laid out and, and in every direction, you know, down that way and every direction down this way, he just looks at this huge table and he just can't wait to just dig in and, and taste it. And he looks at this banquet and he says, surely this must be heaven. And so he goes to dig in and he gets um, the, these, the spoon and this fork. He looks down and, and they're actually, a, a spoon and a fork are attached to his hands, and they're not um, heavy, but he can't detach them. And the other thing is he, he looks at them more closely, and they're humongous. They're like four feet long. Like, he, like the, the fork is four feet long, the spoon's four feet long. And so as he is scooping, and he's digging into this food in front of him, he realizes that it's too long. He can't actually get it into his mouth. And so he starts looking down the, down the either side of this banquet table. There's people on either side. And he sees that these people who have been there long before him have the same struggle. And instead of the sounds of people enjoying this feast, what he hears is people in frustration, groaning and frustrated that they're so close to this feast, but they actually can't enjoy it. And he says to himself, man, maybe this isn't heaven at all. I don't know if you've ever had that experience before where you're so close, you've got something right there at your fingertips, but it's still somehow just out of reach to truly appreciate it. There's various moments that we can come, that's a frustrating experience to have or something so close, but it somehow still just slips through your fingers. We've have, we have those experiences in life and one of those places we can have that experience is when it comes to relationships. Because there's a dynamic where we can be surrounded by humans and still be lonely. We can be surrounded by people and yet still have a longing to appreciate genuine, authentic, healthy friendships that our, our, our soul deep down really longs for. In fact, that's what we're made for. And so what we're talking through in this series called Squad Goals is how do we find, how do we maintain those healthy friendships that we're designed for? We're made, the Bible says we're wired to need these relationships. So how do, we, how do we find them? How do we maintain them? How do we keep these healthy relationships in our lives? And so we're going to look at a, a part in the Bible that, that speaks to that. And what it's specifically going to talk about is there's one foundational core concept that is underneath every single healthy friendship. In fact, it's underneath every healthy relationship. And if we can find this core, if we can realize what it is, then we can release it in every one of our relationships and help it stay healthy and grow in health. 
And so we're going to dig in and look at what's underneath healthy friendships and really healthy relationships and find this core foundational concept. So we're going to look in 2 Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy. You have a Bible or a Bible app open to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Um, if you've just recently gotten a Bible, use the concordance. It will tell you where 2 Timothy is. 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. A little bit of the context here. We call this a book. Literally what it is, is it's actually a letter written by Paul to a guy named Timothy. Uh, Timothy is someone that Paul has mentored. Timothy is his protege. It's probably one of the closest relationships that Paul has. It's one of his closest friends. They have journeyed together on their mission, and they're, they're very close-knit in their relationship, in their friend group. And he's writing him this letter. The way old, ancient letters work is the last part of the letter is where most of the really personal kind of practical stuff is. And so here's what's fascinating about this section of the Bible that we're looking at. The very end of this letter, we're getting a personal window into this guy, Paul, the famous, uh, sometimes called Saint Paul or Apostle Paul. We're getting a window on the personal side of this guy, Paul. And remember, this guy, he's one of the most influential men of the last 2,000 years. It's hard to overstate his influence and his significance. He is one of the greatest spiritual leaders, uh, one of the greatest Christ followers, one of the greatest Christians, and, and just in his influence and what God chose to do through him and through these letters that he wrote that God inspired him to write. And in specifically, he, even in his own day, he was very influential as he traveled sharing the message about Jesus through the eastern half of the Roman Empire I mean, this guy, God used him and his companions to really, the, the empire was never the same after that. He stood before kings, he stood before emperors, and every em emperor after that had to deal with Christianity because of the incredible spread that happened um, in a large part through Paul and his companions and others. And so this is interesting for such a significant, high-capacity leader to hear this personal side of his friendship with this guy named Timothy. Let's see what he says to him. Uh, pick it up in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is a very use, he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now, we'll pause there just for a second. In a moment, we're going to go to verse 13, and we're going to park on verse 13 for our time together. But I want to just get the overarching point of how he's concluding this letter. There's one overarching thing he's asking. He's saying, Timothy, please, I, I know I sent you out to do ministry. I need you back here. I need you here with me. Paul's writing this letter from prison. He's either in jail or prison or best case scenario he is in, under house arrest, but either way, he is not uh, free. He's been arrested for preaching the gospel, and he's writing to Timothy saying, I need you here. Now, that is a big ask because Timothy's in another part of the world, and he's asking Timothy not just, hey, could you jump on a plane and get over here? This is ancient travel 
uh, methods. He's going to have to get on a ship. It's going to be a cost, a high cost from a financial standpoint. It is definitely dangerous, and he's making a big ask. That is how urgent Paul is for Timothy to be there with him. And he tells him why. And Paul is modeling something through this part of his letter. He's modeling really vulnerability. He says, man, I need you here. Why? And he's very clear about that. I'm alone. He says, I've got Luke here. And it's the famous Luke, by the way, the one who wrote the book of Luke, um, wrote the book of Acts in the Bible. He says, I've got Luke here, but outside of Luke, I'm really alone. All of the rest of our group, our team, our squad, all the rest of them, I've either sent off to do ministry or in the case of Demas, one of their, their team, just flat out deserted Paul, left. I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm done with you, Paul. I'm out. And Paul's like, I'm alone. And so because of that, man, I need you here. Now, Paul is modeling something really, really powerful for us. He's basically saying, this is kind of the overarching idea of this part, this passage, is very simply, he's alone and he's saying, that's not okay. Paul's like, I'm all alone and that's not good. I need my team. I need my, my group here with me. And he, he goes on to say, yes, I'm walking through a season of loneliness. And he'll say, God has gotten me through. But at the same time, he's taking a step towards friendship. He's taking that step. I want you to notice what he's not saying. Paul is not saying, Timothy, I'm alone, but I mean, you know me. I'll get through it. I don't need anybody. I mean, you know me, Timothy. I've been shipwrecked multiple times. I've been beaten. I've been whipped. They tried to beat me with rods. They tried to kill me by throwing stones at me. I've been imprisoned. You know me. I can weather quite a bit. I'll be fine. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, Timothy, I'm alone, but it's okay. I'm so, you know, spiritually mature that it's just me and Jesus. That's all I need. I don't need any, anybody else. I'm fine all by myself. That's not what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm alone. Yes, God will get me through, but I'm taking a step towards healthy relationships. Paul, Paul is saying, Timothy, I need you here, man. Can you please come, come here and be with me? I need friendships around me. He's modeling that step. If there's one overarching idea of this whole series, Squad Goals, it's take a step towards relationships and what we, towards friendships. And what we talked about last week is we said there's a big difference between loneliness and isolation. Loneliness is something that at some point every one of us will walk through. We, God allows us to go through seasons of loneliness. You may be walking through a season of loneliness. Maybe there's, this is a new chapter in your life. Maybe you're working in a new, uh, a new uh, company and a new, new branch or new office. Maybe you are um, you've just recently moved down here to South Florida or you've moved into a new neighborhood or maybe some people from your friend group moved away. You might find yourself in a season of loneliness and yes, God will get you through, but loneliness is different for, from isolation. Isolation is something we choose. And isolation is dangerous. But we choose isolation, but here's how we choose it. We don't usually actively choose it in our minds. We never wake up one morning and say, you know, friendships are good, but I'm going to choose to be isolated. That sounds great. You know what my life needs? Isolation. I need to be away from everyone permanently. Rarely do we actively think we're choosing isolation. Here is how we choose isolation. We choose it passively. We choose it when we stand back and say, I'm not going to take a step toward a friendship 
That's too hard, too scary, too risky, too vulnerable. I'm not going to take that step. That may feel like something passive, but it is actively choosing isolation. Why don't we take that step towards relationship? Well, there's various, towards friendships in particular. Well, there's various reasons, and I think to some degree, um, we approach that differently depending on our gender, because we're wired differently. So ladies, you have an incredible capacity for relationships. You have been given an incredible intuition and instinct. You, you have a relational sophistication about you. And because of that, you're typically in tune with your relational needs and you're, you're aware of your loneliness. But at the same time, because you can pick up on relational nuances, it also makes it that much more risky and scary to take a step into relationships. And so you're aware of that need, but it's scary to take that step and to reach out and initiate relationships. It's a, it's a risk because there could be hurt. Guys, we have a different problem. We have the relational sophistication of a gorilla. Okay, and our problem is we can just put our head down and just keep working. What? Relationships? Is that something? I need friendship? I have friends, don't I? You mean that guy you haven't called in five years? Yeah, he's my friend. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. We, we are often unaware of our need for friendships, but we still are wired for them. And so from different reasons, we don't take a step forward. It's either we're unaware or we, we ignore it or we snuff that out or it's just too scary and risky. What Paul is modeling here is loneliness. Yes, God will walk you through it, but that's different than choosing isolation. And choosing isolation is almost always a passive choice where we choose not to take a step towards relationship, but it's still a choice for isolation. So the challenge is take a step towards healthy friendship. The, maybe the greatest thing you could do in a new year, in a new decade, in a new era, maybe the most catalytic thing would be to take a step towards healthy friendships. Now, Paul's going to continue here, and I want to take a look at verse 13. Verse 13 is, it's very simple and practical, but we're going to camp out on it for the rest of our time together because it, it really is profound. Look at 2 Timothy 4, 13. When you come, I love that he assumes Timothy's going to come, right? He says, Timothy, I really need you here. So, since you're already on your way, um, I don't know if he just knows Timothy that well or if he's like, no, seriously, you know, get over here. Okay, I don't know which it is. But he says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. I want you to notice that very specifically. The, the cloak, but the books, and above all, the parchments. Very simple. You're getting a practical window into what Paul needs. He asks for a cloak, which I actually think is funny. Apparently, he had gave it to this poor guy, Carpus, and uh, Timothy's going to be like, I'm going to need that back. Thank you. Okay? <laughs> so I don't know what Carpus is going to do, but he's out of cloak, all right? Because Paul needs it. But he's going to bring it to, to Paul. Why does he want this cloak? Well, if we jump down to verse 21, I want you to look at what he says to Timothy. Do your best to come before, what's the word there? Winter. So he's, this is the second time in these short verses he's asking Timothy to come. He says, come before winter. And did I mention the cloak? Because I need the cloak um, because winter's coming. It's very practical here. The cloak, he, he, remember he's in jail, he's in prison, and so he doesn't have full range of his freedom. And this is also in an era when there's no central heating. 
And this is also in an era where you don't have closets full of clothes. You probably had one outer cloak. And this was a significant part of your livelihood. In fact, it's actually part of your shelter. Your cloak is something that ancient laws in this time period, ancient laws would protect. They were lending and borrowing laws that if you were the lender, you could not take someone's cloak for a long period of time as collateral. Why? Because they needed it. They needed to keep them warm at night. Paul is saying, hey, I have a very tangible need. I'm here. Winter's coming. Please come visit me. I need you. I'm lonely. And please, can you bring my cloak? I need that. It's, it seems very simple. It's one of those details we might just pass over in the Bible. But I want you to notice what Paul is modeling. He has a need and he's not afraid to voice it to people in his squad. He's not afraid to voice his practical needs to ask for help from the friendships around him. But on the other hand, I want you to see the other thing that he asked for. He asked for his books and parchments. Literally, that is scrolls, uh, possibly ancient copies of the Old Testament books of the Bible that he owned, his scrolls, and then the parchments. Those have been pieces of leather that are treated. They would have been very valuable, treated so that you can write on them. Why does he want those? Is he just like a reader? He just loves reading? No, no, it's so much more than that. Right now, he had just, he had just spent most of his adult life fulfilling his calling, going from city to city, preaching, and now he's in jail. And he's, now he must have at some point wondered, God, what? I thought you called me to preach. And yeah, he's preaching to these, these people who have, that are guarding him. He actually preaches the gospel. Many of them come to Christ. But now he has shifted his ministry and now he's writing letters. And honestly, his letters end up being the greatest legacy he left behind. His letters are the books like this one, the letter he wrote to the Christians in Rome, Romans, to Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, to a guy named Philemon. I mean, these are the books that not only impacted all of those cities and regions, but have impacted every generation of Christians since, including us. Why does he say he wants his books and his parchments? That is central to his calling to get the gospel and to protect and nourish these churches. These churches are so vulnerable. They've just heard the gospel. These brand new churches are in Galatia and Romans and Rome and in Corinth. They've just heard the gospel and people are coming right in behind and just distorting the whole message about Jesus. And Paul is so concerned for them that he's writing them letters to prepare them. He knows their spiritual needs. So I want you to notice what he says. He says, I have a need for a cloak, but I need, the other thing I need, I need these parchments and books. I need you to bring them to me because of the churches out there and their needs. And I want you to notice, he asks for both, but one he makes very clear is his priority. The books and parchments. Bring me the cloak, but above all, bring me the books and parchments. In other words, there's this incredible balance that Paul shows us. He's modeling. He's modeling healthy relationships. He's not afraid to voice his needs, but he prioritizes other people's needs. Do you see that? He's not afraid to voice his needs. He's not pretending like he doesn't have any needs. He's not afraid to voice his needs, but his priority are the needs of those around him. Now, Paul is modeling an incredible balance for us because there's two traps we can fall into. There's two poles, two extremes that we can fall into. And the first one is this one. It's self-reliance. It's where we, unlike what Paul does, where he asks for some of his just practical physical needs, we sometimes struggle to ask for help. 
It's so much nicer being the one helping someone than one receiving help sometimes. And we struggle to ask for help because we, we want to be self-reliant. In fact, we look at asking for help as a sign of weakness. We think it's a sign of competency if we don't need to ask for help. So we struggle. So uh, several years back, Rebecca and I decided that we were going to change out the light fixture in our kitchen. And so we went to Home Depot or Lowe's or, or one of them, and we picked out a new light fixture, and we're driving back, and it was uh, late in the evening, but I was excited to, to change out this light fixture. And so I said to Rebecca, I said, man, I, I'm just going to fix this tonight. I'm doing this tonight. I can't wait. And she says, I'm still offended, okay? She says, do you think you should call someone? I mean, talk about undercutting my masculinity here, okay? Call some, do I need to call someone? I'm like, it's just changing out a light fixture, okay? You just undo some of the wires. You reconnect some of the wires. They're color-coded. I mean, what, you can't miss, okay? Like, how hard is it to just change out a light fixture? And so um, I, I go over to the uh, electrical panel, the, the circuit breaker in my house. I get there, and it's already dark out, okay? So um, I, I turn off the circuit that runs to the kitchen, but I can't turn off any of the other circuits in the surrounding rooms because I need those lights on to see what's going on in the kitchen because it's dark outside. So I leave the living room, which is adjacent, I leave those lights on, okay? So I set up the ladder, I climb up, and this, the, the fixture that was there that I was taking out, this big kind of clumsy thing, and so I get that, and, and once I kind of get the top off, and I'm, I'm kind of looking, I'm kind of holding it, and I move one of the wires, and the lights in the living room that are on dim for a second and come back on. And I'm thinking, maybe I should call someone. <laughs> But I think surely I can do this on my own, okay? Now, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking that I'm about to shock myself with electricity and send volts of electricity through my body, okay? That's not exactly what happened. I did not shock myself. What happened was, because it was so clumsy, I invited my wife up the other side of the ladder, asked her to hold it while I'm fixing the, uh, the wires, and at that point, I shocked myself and my wife. <laughs> Yeah, we still have some marital problems because of this, okay? I, I always call someone now. I always, there's always someone that's called, okay? We have trouble asking for help so often. Why? We see it as a sign of weakness. We think that it's demonstrating a lack of competency or capacity if we ask for help. So we say, look, I'm not going to ask for anybody's help at work. I need to show them that I can do it. I don't need them. In fact, I'll help you. It's so much easier being the one who helps, than the one who needs help. I don't need help. I don't need any help or input about my career. I don't need any input about my marriage. I don't need any input about how I parent. I, I don't need any input on what I'm walking through. I, I've got it all together. And we see that as if it's incompetent to ask for help. Or actually, we take it a step further, though. We sometimes, in a, in a spiritual relationship, if you have a friend that's a Christian, we think it's a sign of spiritual weakness to ask for spiritual help. So we go to a group or to a Christian friend and we can't ask for help. No, that's, that's like, uh, makes us look bad spiritually. So we, we can't ask for, we, we, we couldn't possibly say something like, I'm going through a, a spiritual dry season right now. 
I mean, how could I possibly say, look, I, I need help. I'm just struggling with discipline in my life. Or I've got the sin issue that I'm struggling with. Or, or you know, I just feel far from God. Or I, I need help here. I, how could I possibly do that? I mean, I've got to maintain this view of self-reliance. I've got it together. I've got it with, together with my family. I've got it together with my work. I've got it together spiritually. I've got it all together. But that is not what Paul models. What Paul models is he freely and easily is willing to ask for help. He's freely, willingly to say vulnerably, I I need this help in my life. Here's something you could help me with. And I know you didn't ask, but I am asking for help. He's able to do that. Why? That's, to say that I don't need anybody's help spiritually is not a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of spiritual immaturity. It's not a sign that I have arrived. It's a sign that I am denying how I'm wired to need the people around me. It's not a sign of being a high-capacity leader. It's actually a sign of foolishness. Because the people, whether it's at my work or it's the people in my life or my family, I I know intuitively that working with their input in my life, working with their help, that we can accomplish more together. And so it's actually a sign of poor leadership and foolishness to not actually ask for help. And this is what high-capacity, world-changing Paul models to us. He just asks for help. I need a cloak. That's maybe something you could do for me. I don't have it all together, Timothy. I need your help. One pitfall we can fall into with relationships is self-reliance. But the other pitfall, um, it seems like it's the uh, absolute opposite extreme, is self-centeredness. See, here's where, I, where self-reliance is where I say, I don't need anything from anybody. But self-centeredness says, I need everybody to meet all my needs and everything I need. Self-centeredness is when we put our needs first. That's not what Paul models. He, he says, look, I do have needs. I'll vo- vocalize them. But I, I actually, for, more important is, is their needs. That's why I need the books and parchments as a priority. He's aware of his needs, he vocalizes them, but he puts their needs first. But so often we can operate with self-centeredness. Now, the reality is self-centeredness is one of those things that's so easy to spot on someone else, so hard to spot in ourselves because we're sophisticated about our self-centeredness. We don't just come out and broadcast our self-centeredness. No, it's under layers of practiced, you know, relational decorum. But what self-centeredness is lurking under the surface is when we see relationships through the grid of what is it that you do for me? What is it that I get out of this friendship? What is it that I get out of this group of of people? How can you help me? What can you do for me? It's when we see relationships through that grid of how can you serve me? So we might have a friendship. Man, I love spending time with this person. Every time I spend time with this person, it lifts me up. But then this person goes through a difficult time and there's just a long season where they're struggling. If I'm in this relationship for what it does for me, then I might say, hey, look, I'm sorry you're going through this, but I'm just not getting out of this relationship what I used to get out of. So I'm kind of, I'm done. I'm going to back away a little bit. It's where, like, I know you're going through a hard time, but, you know, this isn't working. Or, or, or what we tend to do, and, and here's a, a great a great indicator that we're looking at our relationships through a self, selfish, self-centered lens. It's when I finally find that friend group. And I'm so grateful I finally find this, this friend group and I find this friend. And I'm, and I'm being so fulfilled. I'm getting so much out of that. And so then what I do 
is I clamp down on this group and I don't let anybody else in. I clamp down on this friend group. I clamp down on this small group. I clamp down on this squad and nobody else is allowed in. Nobody else is invited in. Why? Because if I invite someone in, I mean, what if they're a problem? What if they're messy? Or what if, or what if they change the dynamics of the group and then I'm no longer getting what I want out of the group? And so when I clamp down on the group and I don't let anybody else in, that reveals that I'm operating in that group with selfishness. And if the other people in the group are doing that too, then we're all operating out of selfishness. Here's fundamentally what's just happened. That group just turned into a clique. And if selfishness is the foundation of that group, that clique, it's the beginning of the end of the health of that group. If I won't let anybody else in, that is a, a clear indicator of selfishness on my part. It's putting my needs before this outsider's needs. That's just a clear, crisp, crystal clear indicator of selfishness. And if my group won't let anybody else in, man, that shows that selfishness is what's circulating in that group. And that group is just about to fall apart. Because the moment that, if I'm in it, we're all in it for ourselves, mutually beneficial, but we're in it for ourselves. But the moment you, who's currently in my clique, stop doing exactly what I need for you to do for me, what am I going to do? I'm going to draw new lines in this clique and I'm going to box you out because you're making it too complicated. Man, selfishness, that is a poison to any friend group. It is a poison to any squad, to any group, any team. Selfishness is what erodes underneath the relationships. Here's, here's the crazy thing about the extreme of self-reliance, and I call it an extreme. It's not really an extreme. It lurks in every one of our hearts. And the trap of self-reliance and the trap of self-centeredness, what's behind both of those is actually the same thing. It's pride. Pride is behind self-reliance. I don't need anybody's help. I'm going to show you and prove to you that I don't need anybody. I got it. I'm going to show you no signs of weakness. I, I'm, the help, I'm the one who helps people. I don't get help. I don't receive help. So if you need me to help you, that's fine. But I don't need your help. That's pride. But you, and the same thing is behind self-centeredness. What is it? It's pride. My needs are the most important in the room. And I need you to meet my needs. And because the same root is behind self-reliance and self-centeredness, both of those things can appear in the same person in different spheres of their life. So I can go to work and I can be Mr. Self-Reliance. I can go to work and I can be like, I don't need anybody's help, but if you need mine, come and talk to me. I can go to church and I'm Mr. or Mrs. Self-Reliance. I've got it all together. I'm always having a, walking in perfect spiritual maturity. I never struggle, but if you need me to disciple you, that's fine. I, I have it all together and then I can have that self-reliance, but since it's coming from pride, then I can walk into my home and into my house and suddenly switch gears because it's pride driving it and then expect everyone in my house to just meet all my needs. And I can go from self-reliance to self-centeredness, just depending on what sphere that I'm in. In fact, that very dynamic of being self-reliant outside of our most intimate relationships and self-centered with our most relation, intimate relationships, especially in our homes, is such a common dynamic. 
They both come from pride. It's ultimately selfishness. It's the very thing that just poisons relationships. So how do we uproot? I mean, that runs deep. Both of those things, they run deep in our hearts. How do we uproot that out of our lives? Well, Christian, you have the capacity beyond any other human for healthy, selfless, self-sacrificing friendships. You have the capacity for that beyond any other human on planet Earth. Why? That's the foundation of your entire belief system, the gospel. You know what I think the most beautiful illustration and picture of the gospel has to be the symbol, ancient symbol of baptism. You, someone is, sits in a, a baptismal, a, a tank of water, sometimes a, a body of water, and they're, they're taken and they're put, placed completely underwater, and then they come back out all wet, you know, just soaking wet, after being completely submerged underwater and brought out. And you think about it, I mean, how countercultural, how just bizarre, like this this symbol, but it's something Jesus commanded us to do. It's so dramatic. It's a dramatic symbol, but what it's symbolizing is even more dramatic. Do you know what that is when, when someone gets placed completely underwater and brought back up? It's a symbolic burial. It's symbolizing that they're buried and coming back out of the grave. It's a symbol of a burial and a resurrection coming back out. Why? Because the foundation of our salvation boils down to the fact that the Son of God, Creator God, He looks down at, at us and He sees how far we are from Him because of our sin, our mistakes, our guilt, our shame, all the wrong that we've done, all the things that we regret. He looks down at us and He knows that we deserve, justly we deserve, His unimaginable wrath. And so His plan to fix that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, comes to earth and He lives a perfect sinless life, deserving no judgment or wrath and surrenders himself to be crucified on a cross, physically tortured, dying on a cross as a spectacle, humiliated and rejected by humanity. But that's not the worst of it. He's absorbing all on the cross, all of our guilt and our shame and our sin. He's taking all of our sins and, he's pl- and they're being placed on him and he's absorbing the unimaginable wrath in all its fullness from almighty God, the one who spoke universes into existence. It's all being leveraged on the son of God, Jesus Christ, facing all of the punishment and rejection that we deserved. And he takes it all on himself in death. Rises back to life on the third day. So that we can find restoration and reconciliation with God. We we get buried in water and lifted back up because it's symbolizing that our old lives were dead and buried with Jesus. He paid the punishment for us. And so we gladly declare that through that powerful ancient symbol of baptism. What's at the core of who you are? Self-sacrifice. Selflessness. By God Almighty, the one who actually deserves all the praise and glory and attention, the one who actually is at the center of the universe, sacrificed himself for you and for me. 
Christian, why would we continue in self-reliance? Why would we continue in self-reliance? When the very core of who we are was that we needed to be rescued. It's so much nicer being the rescuer, isn't it? But you cannot rescue yourself. We needed Jesus to save us. He rescued us. So why would we continue on as if we've got it all together? We don't have it all together. We have Jesus. Why would we continue in self-reliance? Why would we continue in self-centeredness? Why would we continue in that when the one who deserves all the glory and praise in the universe gave it all up for us with incredible self-sacrifice? How could we stand on the self-sacrifice of Jesus and then continue with lives that demand to be served? How could we not continue in his footsteps with lives ready to serve and sacrifice for those around us that we love? See, we are given all the gospel, the message of Jesus Our following Jesus gives us all that we need to have healthy relationships. See, the the core fundamental key underneath all healthy relationships, every healthy friendship, what's at the core of that, the core principle, selflessness. It's self-sacrifice. It's serving. It's putting their needs before my needs. You know, uh, at the beginning of this time of Bible study, we talked about this parable, this story about this guy who woke up in the afterlife. There's actually a second half to that story. There's another man who wakes up in the afterlife and he's, you know, he's trying to take it all in. His eyes are adjusting and the first thing that hits him is just the smell of this incredible banquet. And all these sumptuous foods and he opens his eyes and he sees this banquet table just stretching in either direction as far as his eyes can see. And he just cannot wait to dig into these foods. And so he goes to dig in and that's when he realizes he's got a fork and a spoon attached to his hands. They're not heavy, but he also can't remove them. And the strange thing is they're four feet long. And so he realizes as he looks at these and as he's digging into the foot, he realizes they're the perfect length to serve the person across the table. And he looks down this way at the banquet and he looks down this way at the banquet and he sees all the people who've come before them and he just hears the sound of laughter and joy and spontaneous singing and all the people enjoying this feast as each person is scooping onto the spoons and serving the person sitting across from them at the table. And he says, surely this must be heaven. What I love about this story is in both instances, the circumstances were exactly the same. One thing was flipped inside. Am I there to serve myself or am I there to serve those directly across from me? The foundation of relationships. Here's the challenge in this series. It's to take a step toward friendship. And as you're taking that step in in these friendships, is understand the foundation is selflessness, self-sacrifice. So here's what I want to do very practically. I don't want anyone to miss an opportunity to take a step towards friendship. So I'm going to ask you to do something very practical with me. Can everyone just take a second and pull out your cell phone? Can you do that for me? Can everyone just take a second, grab your cell phone, turn that on? Go ahead and grab that cell phone. If you're watching online, just open a new tab. 
And, and I want you to go to one of two websites. I want you to either go to westpines.org slash groups or westpines.org slash baptism. I want you to go to one of those two places. I want you to go to groups if you did not get a chance to sign up for a group last week. If you did not have a chance last weekend to sign up for a group, remember our groups are going to be kicking off next weekend. So this is the last week to find out more information about groups. If you're there at westpines.org slash groups, click on that link that says get connected to a group. Click on that link. There's just a couple uh, questions that ask, just your basic contact information and then the types of groups you might be interested in. You are not signing up for a group by submitting that. You're simply requesting more information. Take a brave step. Take a step towards friendship. If maybe you're here and you're saying, you describe getting baptized, and I have never been baptized since I made my faith my own. You say, I've been here and there was one time we took communion and I took one of those wooden cups. So there's one time at the end of a service I prayed that prayer or raised my hand, put my faith in Jesus. And maybe you say, even though I was baptized as a child but, and that was wonderful, that was a great decision my parents made on behalf of my life. But since my faith has become my own, I want to demonstrate this, demonstrate what Jesus commanded in baptism. You can go to that baptism website and click the link, I'd like to get baptized and find out more information. Take a step towards relationship. And as you're entering into this group, remember, we're there to serve. Group is not ultimately for my needs. I don't go to small group first for my needs. I go to serve. And as we're serving each other, as we're serving each other, everyone gets fed. We go there to serve. As you go into group, get ready. Widen the circle. If you are already in a group, find someone who's not and invite them in this term. We always widen the circle. That is a marker of a selfless group. It's a marker of a healthy group as we're widening, widening the circle and making space for more people. Why do we widen the circle? Will someone widen the circle for you? So we always invite more people in. We value, as you're entering in this group, no, we value vulnerability. We don't come into group acting like we've got it all together because none, none of us do. We've got Jesus. And so we enter into group, and while we prioritize other people's needs, we're willing to vocalize our needs and have vulnerability in our relationships. As we're entering in, into stepping towards healthy friendships, we understand, yes, we vocalize our needs, but we prior, prioritize the needs of others. Why? Because the foundation of healthy friendships is selflessness and self-sacrifice. I want to close our, our time today by reading a quote. This weekend, as a country, we are pausing to celebrate one of um, the most profound leaders in our history, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he risked his entire life, faced so much persecution for the cause of justice. An interesting thing about Martin Luther King Jr. is he actually also, like Paul, wrote letters from jail. And there's one letter in particular, a letter from Birmingham jail that I think is some of the most profound words that he communicated. And specifically, he's writing to churches. Churches that are not willing to join the cause of justice because it was too inconvenient and too uncomfortable. And he calls them out on that. And I want to read you the words that he says because it rings so true for today. Here's what he says in this letter. If the, if the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for this 20th century. 
That's true for every generation of Christians. Why? Because the foundation Christian, the foundation church of who we are, the very foundation is self-sacrifice. That's how we are saved. That's the, that's the gospel. That's the foundation of who we are. And so as church, we set our sights on reaching this city that we love. Let us be prepared for following in the footsteps of our Savior, following in the way of self-sacrifice. That is what it will mean. Let us not be caught off guard about putting our needs second when we dare to bear the name of our Savior, as we dare to carry the name Christian, who modeled, Jesus modeled such selflessness, such servanthood, such self-sacrifice. And if we dare to carry his name, may we be ready for the self-sacrifice that it will mean as we release the gospel into our city to see South Florida reached by the power of the gospel in our generation. And if we're going to walk in that way, then we need to see self-sacrifice, selflessness, servanthood start here in our relationships in our church, here in our small groups, here in our friendships, here in our families, in our marriages, in our homes. May we walk in the way of our master with selflessness. Can we just end with a time of reflection? Would you bow your head and, and close your eyes with me? Christian, if the Holy Spirit has nudged you about your self-reliance, nudged you on your self-centeredness, would you just release that and ask for his strength, ask for his help to free you from that? But maybe you're here and maybe you've thought that salvation is something you could earn. You can't. You just need to be rescued by Jesus and you can be rescued right now. Receive his salvation. Be rescued by Jesus. And if that's you, just, I want you, you simply can receive that by uttering this simple prayer. Just silently pray this prayer to him if you want to be rescued by Jesus. Just simply say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. You died on the cross for me. You rose again, I believe it. And that's what saved me. I accept your salvation. I surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.